coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. This is 112BK. On the show today, the mayor is pushing fairness for NYC. A good place to start is in our schools. Journalism under heavy fire and using the soundtrack of the 60s to bring that decade's history to life, courtesy of Soul Science Lab. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us. Have you heard of the drug Mavantic? It's a pharmaceutical for opiate-induced constipation, a condition popularized in a Super Bowl ad a couple years ago. See, opiates are so overprescribed, the resulting constipation so widespread, that a whole other market opens up, and it's so big that it warrants a Super Bowl ad from the company that makes the drug. Here's an idea. Instead of needing more prescriptions for Mavantic, why not just prescribe fewer opiates? Okay. I know we're making some progress on this, slow progress. And also, this is how capitalism works, the American way. See a problem, develop a business solution to cope with the fallout. That's what it feels like is happening with guns and shootings, like shootings at schools, of which there have been 18 this year, including Wednesdays in Florida. Our Congress is too craven to deal with the huge problem of gun violence. Instead, we get smaller, more timid solutions and recommendations. Maybe more metal detectors. Let's get bulletproof glass, more armed guards, and consultants who can help teachers and administrators deal with live shooter situations. I agree with that last one, actually. We're at a point where we need that training, more than, say, fire drills. Fires don't kill students in schools much anymore. Guns do. But while we're doing this, shouldn't we be dealing with some of the root causes, like access to assault rifles, cuts to funding for mental health treatment, even though people dealing with mental illness are much more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of it? Call me a communist or anti-capitalist, but I'd like to put all these operations out of business, ASAP. On the show today, we'll be talking about a study detailing the achievement gap in New York City public schools attacks on journalism and journalists, rhetorical and otherwise, and a musical education about black history at the Apollo. But first, these things. It looks like the planned closure of Rikers is gaining momentum. On Wednesday, Mayor de Blasio and City Council Speaker Corey Johnson discussed plans for dealing with the city jail population once it's closed. One plan deals with the Brooklyn Detention Center on Atlantic Avenue, which will either be retrofitted or reconstructed. We spoke earlier this year with Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez and asked him about the jail plan for Brooklyn, and he said that if we can get the population down, he believes that the current site has the capacity to deal with the Brooklyn population, but not those from other boroughs. So stay tuned for more on these developments. A second federal judge has issued an injunction ordering the Trump administration to keep DACA in place. This time, the judge was from Brooklyn, and it comes one month after a judge in California reached the same conclusion, that its repeal would have profound and irreversible social costs and that the rollback was arbitrary and capricious. Under the ruling, the government will have to maintain DACA as it was before last September's decision to rescind it. But the program does not have to accept new applications, and renewals will be decided case by case. The lovelorn Brooklynite we talked about on yesterday's show, whose misconnections post was blown up into a Williamsburg billboard on Valentine's Day, was denied her connection. The billboard Cupid called for the yellow shoe guy to meet her at 1 p.m. on V-Day. But he was a no-show. 
well, she tried. Keep trying, girl, they're out there. Some lucky Brooklyn kids are getting to see the new hot superhero flick, Black Panther, for free, as part of the Black Panther Challenge. It's a nationwide initiative to get African-American kids to this groundbreaking movie that features black superheroes. A principal of one Brownsville school that sent students said, it's great to be able to see someone representing them. At the end of the month, our Brick Radio podcast, Brooklyn USA, will be featuring the Black Panther Challenge as part of their coverage of Black History Month. So be sure to check it out. Recently, the Center for NYC Affairs published a report titled The Calculus of Race and Class, a new look at the achievement gap in New York City schools. The report brought to light some disturbing statistics that show a chasm. Here to tell us more is one of the co-authors of this report, Nicole Mader from the Center for New York City Affairs. Welcome to 112BK. And David C. Bloomfield, professor of education leadership, law and policy at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Nicole, can you tell me what were some of the more significant findings in this report? Sure. Well, what we were trying to do was to complicate the traditional notion of the achievement gap. Mm -hmm. Most people, when they hear achievement gap, they think we're talking just about the difference in test scores between white students and students of color. And what we wanted to do was show how much more complicated it is than that right. by bringing in student socioeconomic status. Now, traditionally, that's done with free or reduced lunch yes. eligibility, mm -hmm. but that number is really not good enough for measurements of this because it's just yes or no, this student is poor or not. Right. And that doesn't show the huge range of incomes that exist in New York City. So we actually used the student's census tract that they live mm -hmm. in, and we brought in their median household income to show that the students who live in lower economic census tracts mm -hmm. perform far below the average on test scores than wow. students who live in much higher census tracts. And then that is correlated with race because the average economic circumstances of students of color is um, that they live in census tracts with when lower income. When you say income. census tract, can you explain that really quickly? Because I think not everybody's going to sure. well, know the, what the U.S. Census Bureau divides up all of our neighborhoods into little tiny parts. So a census tract is almost the smallest unit that they mm -hmm. count. And it's about a couple of city blocks mm. and not even a full avenue block. We're talking just street wow. blocks. So it's really local neighborhood context that these kids are living in. David, can you talk to me a little bit about segregation in schools right now? How severe is the problem, and how is that contributing to the achievement gap, which I think it does, right? The problem is severe mm -hmm. uh, statewide. We're one of the most segregated states in the union, and that's wow. driven a great deal by the highly segregated nature of the New York City public schools. Mm. We're a third of the student population of the state. And what this study shows is that that segregation really translates into this bifurcated situation of mm -hmm. test scores. And, and remember that the study is only talking about achievement in terms of test scores, right. uh, not in terms of larger issues of instruction and achievement. Right. And, Nicole, you're finding that this gap is occurring even within the same schools, right? Well, this is happening because students from different economic circumstances are going to school with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's not true at all schools. Hundreds of the schools that we found in our report are, are extremely economically homogenous, meaning they mm -hmm. all come from very low-income census tracts. But there are schools with 
more of a range of economic characteristics for these students. Mm -hmm. And the larger income gap between the students, the larger the test score gap we found. So what are the gaps that you're seeing? Like just by the numbers, if we're talking about this achievement gap, what does it look like? The numbers that I was just referring to mm -hmm. show that students that are $50,000 of income apart from each other can be more than one full level of proficiency apart from each other out of a one to four scale. So we're talking all the students are above grade level at mm -hmm. schools with higher income students and all the students are below grade level at schools with wow. lower income students or the different groups of students at the same schools can have those huge gaps. Oh my goodness. And it's really important to remember that what the study shows is the tremendous number of screen schools really prevents the city from having the kind of integration that we need. Uh, when you look at a screen school so that kids basically have the same test scores, mm -hmm. you can have a wide distribution of income levels. But when you look at the general population in a school, it's highly segregated and the achievement gaps are huge. What do you mean by screen school? A screen school is usually in New York City based on test scores. Mm -hmm. And the admission to the school is based on high test scores. Mm -hmm. And so schools basically get to select their populations and everybody else is left to more or less fend for themselves and that's where the segregation really occurs. So literally screening people out. At the elementary level we call that test the gifted and talented test. Mm. At the middle school and high school levels there are other tests that they can take to get into screen schools. Wow. Wow. And David, can I ask, what are some of the problems that we miss in this focus on test scores specifically? Because we've thought of that as one of the largest predictors of academic success and evidence of the achievement gap, right? But we're missing something in that. We're missing a lot. I mean, it's good to test, it's good for mm -hmm. accountability and a certain measure to see these kind of uh, disparities by right. income, by race. But when we talk about integration, we're talking about education as a much more general matter, mm -hmm. uh, not only in terms of subject matter that, that isn't tested for, mm -hmm. but in terms of social-emotional learning mm -hmm. and just plain getting along. And so we mm -hmm. shouldn't be concentrating too much on test scores. It's just one measure and it's a snapshot and it's mm -hmm. once a year. It's not education, it's testing. Are there better ways to look at this issue? There are a lot of different ways to look at the issue, mm -hmm. and I think that one of the great things about the report was that it talked about the limits of the analysis mm -hmm. as well as the breadth of the analysis. Right. And, and so we really need to be looking at inter-district desegregation mm -hmm. so that uh, districts which are highly segregated themselves can share resources and share populations. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to end this widespread screening that's driven by the accountability mm -hmm. movement that said, right. well, you'll be a failing school if you have a low test score and you'll be a great school if you have high test scores. And right. so let's screen the students mm -hmm. rather than improve the education. Right. So Absolutely. there's a lot going on here. Nicole, talk to me about how this translates into the real world. What happens to these kids lost in this achievement gap? The, as David just said, the, the test scores aren't necessarily reflecting everything about their right. academic ability. So some mm -hmm. of these kids may be very high performing in terms of their grades, in terms of how they interact with other kids, in terms mm -hmm. of their creative thinking. So this may not affect them as much as, as this report may seem to suggest. Right. But 
when we are talking about these screens, and at the middle school level, there's many more screens. At the high school level, almost all kids are applying to schools that are going to look at their test scores. Mm -hmm. It does affect what schools they're able to get into. So the elementary school results do tend to stick with them mm -hmm. and cause future segregation at every level when these kids are, are separated by their academic abilities each step of the way. Is anybody, I mean, and this is a question for either of you really, are there examples anywhere across the country of school systems that are getting this right or who are fixing this or correcting this achievement gap or is everybody just sort of living with it? Most school districts are living with it, accepting it. Some are pushing back. Kentucky, surprisingly, has done a very good job in trying to push back. There—I'm a lawyer, and there's a Supreme Court case that makes it very difficult now to take race into account. So most of these strategies involve income right. rather than racial uh, strategies. Mm -hmm. Is that good enough? Is that going to work? Well, I think that there's an important distinction to make between just using a racial or economic characteristic to mm -hmm. mix students around into different schools and right. actually integrating the schools. Right. So what I mean by that is you, you might be able to have diversity, and our report shows some very diverse schools mm -hmm. that still have test score gaps. Right. So that doesn't mean you're necessarily integrated. Right. So the, there's been a lot of great work done here in New York City, especially by the student activists of Integrate NYC trying to reframe this debate mm -hmm. and saying integration isn't just about diversity and the, the racial enrollment of a school, it's also about the resources the schools have, the right. representation on the staff, the restorative justice used as a discipline method, mm. um, and the relationships that students have with each other in the building and students within other schools, too. Right. All of those things are going to play a role in the outcomes uh, that we're looking at in test scores, graduation rates, and future life. So it's a more holistic effort. It's holistic, and we have a great chance in New York City, because of the diversity mm -hmm. of, of wealth and race, to really do a better job than other districts, which themselves are so segregated right. that if you only do it within the district, you're not going to find the kind of diversity for true integration. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for coming on and explaining some of this. I think it's something that concerns a lot of people, but they don't always have all the information the way they need it, and I think you guys provided that. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Enemies of the people. That's what our president has called journalists. If you need any context for this kind of attack, Stalin used it as a pretext to annihilate anyone who didn't agree with him. And he was the second most murderous dictator of all time. Who was number one? Mao. And by many accounts, he was inspired by Stalin. Why am I going to such extremes? Because what the president is doing is dangerous. And don't just take it from me. Take it from our next guest, Alex Ellerbeck, from the Committee to Protect Journalists. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell me really quickly about the rise in threats against the press since this rhetoric, this anti-press rhetoric has become so, it just like has gasoline poured on it from this administration? Yeah, gasoline is the right word. Uh, we started counting all of Trump's tweets against the press starting from his campaign and we're over a thousand now. I mean, the sheer quantity is, is actually fairly wow. impressive. I think, you know, we are very concerned about this anti-press rhetoric. 
uh, it's easy to dismiss, you know, rhetoric, but they have a real effect. They have a real effect when Trump targets individual journalists by name. Mm -hmm. He went after Megyn Kelly 50 plus times, and mm -hmm. she had to travel with security guards. Uh, we've seen upticks in online harassment, um, especially from online trolls and the alt-right targeting uh, journalists and mm -hmm. sometimes even revealing their information online, their doxing. home address. Yeah, yeah, doxing, their telephone numbers, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes that of their parents or their family members, and that's really scary. But I think what we really worry about is the effect of this in other countries. Mm. So you started out with the example of Stalin, uh, also using the phrase enemies of the people. But I think it's important to, to draw a little bit of a distinction. Mm -hmm. You know, in many countries where leaders use the phrase enemies of the people, journalists go to jail, journalists are killed. And that right. hasn't happened in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, we have all these checks and balances and protections that prevent that. But this rhetoric trickles out to countries yeah. that don't have that. And so we saw double the number of journalists arrested on charges of fake news or false news mm. this year, which was the record, the second record-breaking year of journalists in jail around the world. Wow. Um, so in 2017 or 2000? 2017, yeah. Wow. Wow. So can you describe, because that's one of the things, is uh, this more uh, global impact, but what is the danger? Because there are always going to be people who ask this. Ultimately, meh, what's the danger of an administration attacking the press's credibility constantly? I think it's important to remember that we protect journalists, obviously, because we care about them, but also because they are essential to our democracy. Right. They are essential to uh, the ability for people to know what their elected leaders, who they're paying taxes to, mm -hmm. uh, know what they're up to. Right. And we worry that this rhetoric can also have a trickle-down effect. I talked a little bit about the effect of trickling out mm -hmm. uh, to countries around the world, but we worry that when terms like fake news or enemies of the people are being bandied around, it makes right. it that much easier for uh, your governor or your, mail, uh, your mayor to uh, deny the press entry, mm -hmm. which means that they're making it that much easier for you not to know what they're up to. So one of the things that this does is allow elected officials, basically when something comes out unfavorable to them, to be able to say, uh, the press isn't credible and they're lying. It's a tactic that works very well for at least a, a certain segment of the population to portray the press as just another sort of partisan voice mm. out there, or as an enemy involved in this, this tit for tat, uh, rather than a sort of very diverse, broad group of media, of reporters that are investigating things, talking to sources, mm -hmm. and uh, trying to hold uh, politicians to account. I've never seen President Trump ever, ever, ever criticize, say, a Fox News. I've never seen President Trump criticize, President Trump yeah. criticize these different news outlets that are like totally supportive of him. But the ones who are critical of him in any way, even the ones who are pretty moderate, he just 
goes after them immediately. And I'm wondering, is it this pattern of like, they say something about him, then he says something about them, and then they talk about what he said about them? And, cause it's starting to feel a little bit cyclical. The thing you said about Fox News is interesting because when he was a candidate, they were his main target. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes he would praise CNN and go after Fox News mm -hmm. uh, because he was running in the Republican primary and they were, you know, they were the ones criticizing him. And so you definitely see it's exactly that dynamic that you said. Right. Of he goes after outlets uh, that are critical right. of him. It, there's always an adversarial relationship between the press and the presidency and politicians. <laughs> yeah. And it would be really scary if there weren't. Right? right, like we want there to be an adversarial relationship. That's how you know that they're doing the job. If politicians are happy with the press, that's not a good sign. Right. But there's a difference between an adversarial relationship and a relationship where the person with the highest elected office, uh, with one of the most, if not the most powerful platform in the world, is attacking individual journalists and is attacking journalism as an institution with no recognition that, you know, it plays a role, mm -hmm. uh, the vital role it plays in democracy. Yeah, and it is a vital role. So what do you think of the Journalist Protection Act, which was just introduced by Representative Eric Swalwell, I believe, um, making it a federal crime to intentionally harm a journalist? You know, I understand uh, some of the energy around that. Mm -hmm. you know, we've just been talking about these attacks on journalists. Uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists joined with 30 other organizations to launch the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker. Mm -hmm. And we've documented 34 journalists arrested in 2017. We documented a number of journalists who faced physical attacks. Um, most of these were in the context of protests. I'm not sure that this is the right solution. I think mm -hmm. we always worry uh, the, this type of legislation requires a definition of journalist, and we always have mm -hmm. concerns about the government defining who is and who isn't a journalist. Right. Uh, there are also existing laws on the books that, that deal with many of these, these offenses. So we work internationally, and in a country like Mexico, um, we have pushed very hard for crimes against journalists to be uh, dealt with at the federal level because mm -hmm. there is this complete incapacity for state governments in, in Mexico to deal with crimes against journalists. Right. But that's not I don't, the case. Here. I don't really see that here. So, right. so you know, I think it's an important conversation, and we're still sort of entering into that conversation and, and analyzing the bill. But uh, we see the need. We think it's this type of energy around press freedom is very important, but we're still sort of positioning. So, where should the energy be spent? You know, I think there's a lot of things uh, that people can do. I think um, there's more energy around. Uh, protection, source protection for journalists. Mm -hmm. uh, so whether that's a shield law that protects journalists from giving up their their sources, uh, which has some of the, you know, some of the same issues about define the language you use to define journalists right. as as the um, Journalist Protection Act, but mm -hmm. also has some very real benefits when the attorney general is, you know threatening to make it easier to subpoena journalists. Right. I think that's something people really need to be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. uh, under the Obama administration, we saw actually an unprecedented number of investigations into people leaking information to the press. Mm. Uh, and
And as part of that, the Obama administration actually argued in court that journalists should be forced to give up their sources. And I wonder if they, they regret that now, but, oh, but it's, sure a, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty bad precedent. And when, you know, Jeff Sessions says he has 27 leak investigations compared to about three per year under Obama, when mm. he says he's going to make it easier to subpoena reporters, mm. we should be very worried about their ability to protect their sources, which is, you know, the lifeblood of Absolutely. journalism. And then, you know, what citizens, regular people could do, subscribe. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny for, for big national media like the New York Times or the Washington Post, obviously these constant attacks have been demoralizing. For some individual journalists, they've actually been uh, threatening. But there's been this silver lining of, you know, people a little bump to... in subscription. There's, there's right. a Trump bump. That's not true for your local papers. That's not yeah. true for the Kansas City Star. That's not true for your community newspaper. So, right. and those are, those are essential. So people should subscribe. People should support journalism. Good. Well, thank you so much for thank being you. here, Alex. I really appreciate you coming on and explaining more about this situation that we're all really, really always looking for information for. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Next up, two musicians will tell us about their multimedia event, Soundtrack 63. Here's a moment from the concert with a song made famous by the great Mahalia Jackson. talk about black history without talking about the music. Well, the Brooklyn-based Soul Science Lab folds in an education on black social history with one about the rich musical traditions, specifically the music of the 60s. This all comes together in their Black History Month special engagement, Soundtrack 63, on February 24th. Here to tell us more are Soul Science Lab co-founders Chen Lo Pitigru, welcome to the show, and Asante Amin, Great to have you on 112BK. Almost messed up the name of my own show because that's how startled I am by the flyness, <laughs> to be perfectly uh, it's, it's, it's great to be here. It's a huge honor. Yeah, it's <laughs> an honor to be here. Thank you. Happy to have you. So tell me about Soul Science Lab. How did the project come about? Um, why Soul Science Lab? Like, mm -hmm. how did that happen? Do you want to... Sure, Soul Science Lab, a collaboration between me and Asante Amin, started five years ago approximately in a small Brooklyn apartment. Uh, some people might call it a slum. <laughs> we had both been working in separate bands but collaborating over the years. Um, fate brought us together. We actually had to live together because of dire situation. Um, and then we connected and started making music together and the rest is history. The, the company came out of actually Soundtrack 63. So Soundtrack 63 was an opportunity we received uh, from 651 Arts, uh, mm -hmm. which used to be right around the corner, right here, and that was the impetus for us to create an actual company that could house this production and all the other amazing things we were doing together. Wow. Absolutely, and yeah. why science, Asante? Why science? That's 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 amazing. I think if you look at what Soundtrack 63 is, mm -hmm. it's dealing with so much emotion, 
so much so, but we also approach it as scientists in the way we put the show together with a lot of intentionality. Right. And we are artists, but we're educators as well, so we always bring that kind of philosophy to anything we create. And we feel like as people of color, as mm -hmm. black people, as African descendants, the best of what we have to offer in terms of classical civilization exists at that cross point of soul mm -hmm. and science. So yeah. that's that's something we want to model um, for generations to come mm -hmm. and just model for our people to see. I love that. And why the year 1963? Mm -hmm. So 1963, uh, 651 Arts back in 2013 mm -hmm. was doing a series on, it was called Movement 63. <clears throat> and they were commemorating the 50 year anniversary of the March on Washington, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, the assassination of Megger Evers in Mississippi. It was kind of like a fulcrum year um, during the Civil Rights Movement. There were many things uh, in black history in America that led up to that point True. and then many things that happened after it and so you know looking at that as a flashpoint but understanding the bookends of it so soundtrack wow. 63 actually begins pre-transatlantic slave trade and comes all the way up to Colin Kaepernick you wow. know, as another bookmark you know huge chunks and swaths of, of, of history mm -hmm. um, but told through music and during each era you know it's scored by an 18-piece orchestra playing mm -hmm. that period music Wow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you guys, one of the things that I know you guys do is some social activism as well. Do mm -hmm. you consider yourselves social activists? How about you, Asante? Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's a great question, and I would say yes. And um, what comes to mind is the late, great Audre Lorde, and she had a quote that mm -hmm. said, um, you know, self-care self is not self-indulgence, mm -hmm. it's self-preservation, and as such, it's an act of political warfare. Mm -hmm. So I feel like what we're doing in terms of expressing the wishes and the history of our ancestors in a very passionate and colorful way. Not only is it telling a story, but it's, it's self-preservation and it's self-care and it's great for our mental health and as such it is an act of political warfare. Mm -hmm. And like Fela Kuti said, we use the music as our weapon mm -hmm. yes. and, and, and music is the weapon of the future and can penetrate people's mm -hmm. hearts and minds in a way that bullets and bombs never can. So talk to me about the music. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the music. The music, so so many things. I mean, for <clears> us <throat> as black people, art has always been, uh, if you listen to our music, you can hear where we are in history, what's going on with us, are we struggling, are we dealing with whatever conditions we might be dealing with, right? Um, Paul Robeson actually said that the artist must elect to fight for slavery or freedom. I've made, I had no alternative, I made my choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a such thing as art for art's sake. It's gotta be purposeful art. And so if you listen to our music, you'll hear so much purpose, passion, pain, wow. pleasure, joy in our music um, yeah. consistently. Mm -hmm. you, you, you hear the full spectrum of our humanity. Mm -hmm. And you also have to consider that under the conditions we've had to live for the past 400, 500 years mm -hmm. um, in this situation, we've been denied of our humanity and been mm -hmm. relegated to like lower caste systems. And so the places we were able to come together and say, I am somebody, or Black Lives right. Matter, or I am a man, even before these things were slogans and hashtags, have been through our music, through our song, right. our, our dances. And so as right. Chen is saying, the music is functional. It plays an active role in our preservation as a people. Right. Where do I get tickets? Oh, that's a great <laughs> that's question. That's the question. Where do I, mean, I get tickets? The, the Apollo's website, you know, uh, mm -hmm. February 24th, Soundtrack 63 is happening at the legendary historic Apollo Theater. Mm -hmm. So if you head to their website, you can get tickets from Ticketmaster, Live Nation. Anywhere tickets are sold, you know, digitally, you can get mm -hmm. them. They're going fast. 
So I'd recommend that you get them. Get, get know, your tickets. Uh, yeah, get them now. It, get it, them now. It's yes, definitely yes. slated to sell out. We got Fantastic. family members calling us up. Like, I know they I'm do. Like, I can't even help you no and more. You know, and you know yeah. how family is. They, yeah. they want the ticket now. <laughs> right. Thank you guys so much for being here and mm. for sharing this moment with us. It's fantastic. Thank you for having me. Hope us. to have you back soon. Definitely. Yes. Don't let this be the last project. Come back oh, some no, other no, time. No. Thanks so okay. much. Appreciate Thank you. Yes. And have a great weekend. We're off for President's Day on Monday, so I'll see you Tuesday. We've got some exciting stuff coming up. Ravi Rodbeer will be here. So will City Council Member Alicia Samuel. And we'll talk about Malcolm X and beer. See you soon. 112 BK is hosted by me, Ashley Seaford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Barbie, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hobbesack, Antonio Rosario, and our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>